a number of you have expressed your interest in the Israel tour. And we have brochures down here on the, on the table at your front right. And uh, we need to start getting serious about signing up for the tour. And one reason I'm saying this is so it goes out over the Internet, because there's a number of people uh, who have called and asked questions. One guy even said, I think my eternal security is at stake. God spoke to me and said I had to go on this trip. Of course, he was saying that tongue-in-cheek, but... Uh, we, you know, it, it, it gets to the point where it's fish or cut bait time, and these guys have told me that it, it's, it, it takes time to pull all this stuff together, so we need to uh, pay attention to the seriousness of planning so that we can, as leaders, get all of, finish getting all of our uh, details taken care of. So the trip will go on June, June the 14th, and there's a it's either 10 or 12 days for the initial part. It's in the brochure. And then there's an add-on for uh, going to Jordan. So pay attention to that. Update on Ulan. Ulan is still in Berlin. They're awaiting a uh, some sort of disposition. He has the opportunity to get out of the uh, place where the refugees are all uh, stored in some sort of low-rent project sort of uh, uh dormitory and into an apartment so we're trying to help them out with that uh, financially see if there's anything else I need to mention I think that's it before we get started let's uh, have a word of prayer go to the Lord to ask his guidance and direction on our study of the word this evening we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started let's pray Father, we do thank you for your word that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is your word that gives us direction. It is your word that tells us about yourself. But you tell us about how we can have a relationship with you, which is through Jesus Christ alone. And not only that, you inform us about the nature of human society and so many facets of human thought. And it's all to be derived from your word. Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, that we can understand these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last week, I was gone on Thursday. We had a guest speaker on Tuesday, and I have, actually, I haven't heard much about what uh, David taught last Tuesday, so I'm assuming no report's a good report and that he didn't commit any egregious heresies and that uh, everything he taught was biblically correct. For those of you who are relatively new either to my ministry or to the church here, I want to take a minute to give a report on what went on last week and why. God has seen fit over the course of the last eight years to give me an extended ministry beyond the borders of our and the walls of the local church. And all of this began when I went up to Preston City in 1998, thinking I was going to a small New England village and I would spend the rest of my days ministering in isolation in the backwater of Yankee, Connecticut. Ha! God has an interesting sense of humor. I had hardly been on the ground in Connecticut three months before I received a phone call 
from a former student of mine who had been a student when I taught at what used to be the uh, Houston Bible Institute and is now College of Biblical Studies. He had been my student back in 85, 86, that era. And he said, uh, he said, Robbie, I've got a, I've been involved with some other pastors in a pastor's conference. And we meet once a year, and the focus is to take these pastors who don't have a lot of formal training and to acquaint them with the basic procedures of Bible study, of exegesis, how to do word studies, how to get, using the English crutch tools, how to get into the basic grammar uh, understanding some things about voice, tense, and mood in the Greek and how they help uh, understand a passage and a few things related to isagogics and historical background and context. And the man who's been teaching the Greek grammar part, the Greek syntax part, went to be with the Lord about two weeks ago, and we need to find somebody to take his place because our conference is the first week of October, and this was the last week of August. So I, they were, he was giving me all of maybe five weeks notification. And I said, well, I'd be glad to do that. I'd be very interested. He said, uh, he told me, he said, don't worry. He taught it the same way you taught a similar course to us back at the college. So his notes and his methodology were the same. We'll give you all the notes. We'll send you the notebooks. All you have to do is teach it. I said, well, that sounds good. He said, we'll call you back and let you know. Week went by, two weeks went by, three weeks went by. Now it's like the third week of September, and I got a call and said, "Well, we you're going to come. We'll, uh, we'll send an airline ticket for you tomorrow, and you come on down to Memphis, and we're counting on you to do this." Of course, I was moving into a house. See, the Lord always has a sense of humor. You know, when when He piles one thing on, He piles a bunch of stuff on. So the night before I left, I was uh, putting in the dishwasher. I mean, the washing machine and the dryer and hooking all this stuff up and thinking about the fact that I was going to be teaching four hours every morning for the next week, and I had hardly any idea what I was going to do, but somehow uh, I had looked at the notebooks, and they were indeed the way I would have structured everything. So I thought, well, we'll wing it. The Holy Spirit will come through. So the next morning I got up, and I flew to Memphis, and went to this pastor's conference. Now, I had, up to this time, been at a number of pastor's conferences. And usually there were 40 or 50 pastors there, uh, maybe 60 if it was an exceptional event. But little did I expect that there would be 500 to 600 pastors at this pastor's conference in Memphis and that I would be the only white man. And that was a revolutionary experience for all of us. And it was a tremendous event, and uh, they, in, they determined by the end of the week that, that they liked me. In fact, R.A. Williams, who's the president, R.A. had to put his wife in the emergency room the night before he left to come to Memphis. And uh, it wasn't long, it was within the next year that she went to be with the Lord. But that just the kind of angelic conflict that ripped and roared around uh, and does continually around uh, the WHW conference. Now, the reason it's called WHW is because it stands for the initials of the last names of the three men who founded the conference, Williams, Harris, and Waddles. And Harris was the one who went to be with the Lord the summer of 98. He was a graduate of Cedarville University, which is where uh, Dan Ingram did his undergraduate work, where uh, a couple of Tommy Ice's uh, boys have done their undergraduate work, and is a 
very solid Christian university now up in Ohio. So I came in and, and taught that, and as the years have gone by, I've had a tremendous ministry. The last couple of years, we've had, oh, more than that, probably the last four or five years, we've had in excess of a 1,000 people show up at the conference. This year was down a little bit because we get a healthy percentage out of the South, and the South has been bushwhacked by hurricanes this year, so we only had two pastors from Louisiana. Normally we get about 40 or 50 folks from New Orleans alone. So that made a significant difference this year. But my job has been to equate this men with the rudimentary uh, issues related to grammar and how to get into the Greek text a little bit or Greek grammar using the tools that are available today. And this has been quite a challenge. I mean, I know of one man who just struggles every year, has been coming for years, and he doesn't have anything more than an eighth grade education. But he, you know, the, the God the Holy Spirit certainly makes up for a lot of, uh, of these educational flaws and failures. In 2000, or excuse me, in 1999, I brought another uh, white boy in by the name of Wayne House. And the reason I did was after my first year, uh, R.A. said, Robbie, do you know somebody who's really good who can address the issue of the role of women in ministry and women pastors? And I said, yeah, the, the key guy, the point guy, the point conservative theologian on that whole issue in evangelicalism is Wayne House. And he's debated the liberal feminists and the uh, liberal feminist evangelicals on their home turf many times. And I can call up Wayne, and he's an old friend of mine, and, and he'll be glad to come. So I brought Wayne in. And then the next year, after bringing Wayne in, we were talking and said, these guys really need more formal education and a lot more than what they get from just coming for this one-week conference where they get 12 hours of uh, intense instruction in the morning uh, over the course of the days and then some extra instruction on different topics in the afternoon. So Wayne at that time was a professor. Well, he still is now. He's part-time. But he was a full-time professor up at the Faith Evangelical Seminary in Tacoma, Washington, which was a Lutheran seminary. And I think Lutheran is still in their name in case that confuses you. But as a Lutheran seminary, they continue to hold to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and some of their faculty are dispensational, so Lutherans won't send anybody there. So they've basically become an independent seminary. So we brought Mike Adams down, who's the academic dean up there, and we said, is there some way we can work out a degree program between... What they're going through here at the WHW conference and what your requirements are so that they can get partial credit for coming to the conference for three or four years and then take coursework and extended coursework, correspondence work and get at least the equivalent of a two-year master's degree in biblical studies. So we worked out a plan and it took a long time for that, for that plan to really get off the ground and to catch with the men. And the first graduation was in 2002. I think that's when I received my doctorate. And there were nine men who got their master's degree. This last year, seven or eight of those nine men who got their master's degree in 2002 got their doctorate. Nineteen other men, including one man who's 72 years old and has been a pastor for over 45 years, almost 50 years, got his master's degree. 
And this is the impact of that particular ministry. As one of the pastors there told me my first year, he said, he said, Doc, you got to understand in the white community, you, you discover you want to be a pastor, you go to seminary, and then you get a church. But in the black community, you get the call of Jesus, you go start a church, and then sometime down the road decide you need to learn something about what you're going to say. And so it's really a cultural difference, and that is, and a lot of these men don't have the formal training, but now that through, through the uh, program with Faith Seminary, they're doing that. And each year, they, as others, as their peers, watch them get their degrees. They say, well, I'm not going to be left behind. Let me sign up for the program. And it is making a remarkable difference in the content of their, of their communication, of their preaching, and their teaching. So this is one of the things that I do when I disappear for a week in October is to go out there and I usually teach for four hours every morning on syntax to different groups. And then in the afternoon I usually teach something related to basic doctrine or theology. And so I'm out there teaching about six or seven hours a day. And then, of course, there's other meetings in, that I have to be involved in, and in a banquet one night, and a church meeting another night. And, and so I end up getting up every morning about 5.30 and going to bed about 12.30. And then I'm, and I'm, that's the only time I'm ever in my hotel room. So I always come back just a little bit brain dead and wasted, and you just have to forgive me. Now, the other thing that this involves is in February, I usually have to go out there for a board meeting and a planning meeting, and then this year they're going to have a mini-regional conference in Chicago the 1st of October, but that's only like a two-day conference. But that is one, one ministry the Lord raised up for me and opportunity gave me. Another is working with Jim Myers. We've got a tremendous report from Jim today that was emailed out just before I came to class. And Todd Kennedy's pastor of Spokane Bible Church has been there the last two weeks teaching. And uh, what Jim is doing in order to give... The success to that college, that seminary he has there, is to bring in pastors, doctrinal pastors from the U.S. to fill the gap. Because uh, before Mark Musser was there, and it was just the two of them trying to teach an entire Bible college curriculum, and that was hard enough with just two men. And so they were bringing uh, other pastors from the U.S. in to help carry the load. Well, Mark went off the field, as you know, this last year. So now it's even more necessary. Mark Perkins from Front Range Bible Church in Denver, Todd Kennedy, a number of other men, I'm not going to name them all, but a number of other men, pastors go over there for two-week rotations to teach basic courses in theology, soteriology, angelology, Christology, and then Jim fills in the gaps. So that's just part of what I do, and the Lord has certainly raised these opportunities up, and it's, it's exciting. You never know the impact that you have. A couple of years ago, I taught an intense uh, seminar here in Houston over at Richard Rose's church at Holy Trinity on basic grammar. I wrote a grammar called Greek Grammar for People Who Don't Know Greek as my doctoral project, and then taught that in this uh, 12-hour seminar at Rose's Church and sold or gave, gave the tapes to uh, the book to uh, some uh, one of the pastors picked it up last year and he uh, took it home. And you never know, when you write a how-to manual, you just don't know what's going to 
happened? Does it work? And he took it home, and, and he was sitting in one... I didn't know him at all. I didn't know any of this at the time, and I guess it was last Tuesday. He was in my class, and he kept asking questions about the grammar of the text. And I thought, well, I have somebody in here who's had some formal training in Greek. He's asking really perceptive questions. And after class, he came up and he said, Doc, I got your book and the tapes last year, and I listened to all the tapes and worked my way through the manual, and uh, it just made a big difference. I really understand it, and now I'm able to apply this all the time. And I thought, wow, it really does work. So this is just part of the ministry that God's given me, and it's a tremendous opportunity to see the change that this makes. And this is part, and I, as we had it in Preston City and and here, this is part of the missionary outreach of this congregation, is to send your pastor to things of this nature to communicate the Word and communicate doctrine and to communicate a vision for a deeper, more profound, and academically correct scholarly study of the Word of God to people who've never seen that before. And so this is just an appreciation for you for being, for allowing me to do these kinds of things, and it's just, uh, you just, you never know what the impact's going to be. I mean, the men that brought me into this ministry were students of mine some 13 years before they contacted me. They didn't know where I was. They just knew that when Harris died, they said, we know the guy who can do it. We don't know where he is, but we'll find it. And that was just the impact that you had. So you never see or really understand the fruit of ministry down through the years. Well, we need to get into the Word a little bit. Open your Bibles to Genesis 21. Genesis 21. Now, this passage at the end of Genesis 21 is one of those interesting little passages in the Scripture that is sandwiched in between two major events in the life of Abraham. And if you go through the life of Abraham, we frequently will talk about the events in the first part of Genesis 21, which involves the birth of Isaac. The promised seed has come. God made a covenant with Abraham back in chapter 15 that he would, that he would make him the father of many nations. That uh, in Genesis 17, he identified the fact that this seed would definitely come through Sarah and that it would be a son. And that son finally comes when Abraham is a hundred years of age. And for uh, 20 years, he has been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, for this covenant to start coming into effect. And so in chapter 21, verses 1 through 21, we read about the birth of Isaac and then how God is going to protect the home environment of Isaac by removing Hagar and Ishmael from the home environment so that there's not going to be this sibling rivalry inside the home and it will be clear that Isaac is the designated heir. And then when we... Turn to chapter 22 as a preview of coming attractions. We see Abraham's final exam, a story that's familiar to almost anyone who has spent any time in Bible study. That this is the episode where God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, which is a foreshadowing of the unique person, the monogenes of the only begotten Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek translation of the Septuagint uses that same word here to refer to the only son Isaac, monogenes. And Abraham is to take Isaac up to uh, the mountains of Moriah and he is to sacrifice him 
to God. And, of course, the mountains of Moriah are the exact location where Calvary is, and all of this is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the whole event there dealing with Isaac is a picture of of many different things, which we'll get to next time, but it is a well-known episode in Abraham's life that is referenced in the New Testament several times. But sandwiched in between the birth of Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac is this funky little episode having to do with Abimelech and his military commander, Phicol. And as you look at this, you say, well, that's kind of interesting, and our eyes just have this tendency to just jump from the birth of Isaac to the sacrifice of Isaac, and this just seems like an enigmatic little episode, and we don't know why it's there. And when you get to something like that in Scripture, sometimes what you have to do is just sort of pull back on the reins a little bit or step on the brake or whatever metaphor you want to use and stop and say, why is this here? God the Holy Spirit is, has an economic use of language. He doesn't just tell us things that happened for no reason. There's lots of things that happened in the life of Abraham that, that, uh, that the Holy Spirit could have revealed to us. There's all kinds of things that happened between Adam and Noah and between Noah and Abraham and between Joseph and Moses and Moses and Joshua and on and on that the Holy Spirit could have told us about. We would have been fascinated to read these little episodes and vignettes But we come to this and we go, well, what's so significant about this? And that ought to cause us to really stop and pay attention because the Holy Spirit put it here for a reason. And it's sandwiched into this location for a reason. And so that is one of the things that causes a pastor teacher sometimes to beat his head against his desk because he's got to answer the question, why is this here? What is the doctrinal significance of this? If you're a Jew and you're reading this, and you're getting ready to go into the land, why is that important? If you're a church-age believer and you're reading this, even more, why is that important? What in the world is going on in this particular episode? And it is another opportunity for Abraham to apply some doctrine. So we're going to... Switch to look at verse 22. 22, and we read, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Okay, let's stop a minute and just sort of do a little breakdown on the text. The first phrase, the opening phrase, is based on the uh, Hebrew verb hayah, actually it's the cow imperfect plus the vav consecutive, which is the normal, the vav is the and, it's the normal verb for Hebrew narrative. And the way we write, Hebrew narrative just seems boring because all the sentences begin with an and plus the verb, and he went here and he did this and he said that and he did this and this and that. That's the flow of Hebrew narrative. And it begins, and it happened. The verb hayah means to be, to come into existence. It happened. So you could read it, and it happened, or it came to pass. Now, the next word that's there is the word et, which means time, plus the, not 
plus the uh, not participle but preposition, plus the preposition bait, which means at that time. So what the writer, what the Holy Spirit wants us to note is it came to pass at that time. At what time? At that time after, at the birth of Isaac, after Ishmael and Hagar had been removed from the home, which secured the safety and the peace in the home. Now, I want you to hang on to that word peace for a little bit, because that's a key concept underlying this passage. What God is doing here is providing security and a peaceful environment for the upbringing of the seed. But there's some other interesting things that are going on here that have some fairly interesting implications for us. It came to pass at that time, that is at the time of the birth of the seed, that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, come to Abraham. So there is an emphasis on the surrounding context. This happens at the birth of Isaac, and that is a reminder of the of the basic theme of the first 21 verses, which is God's faithfulness in fulfilling His covenant. And we studied God's faithfulness and the doctrine of God's faithfulness the last time. God is faithful to fulfill His covenant. He established a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. Covenant is a contract. So you don't forget the idea. The term covenant is basically a contract. It is a legal document that binds two people or two parties. And you have different kinds of covenants in the Old Testament. We talk about unconditional covenants and conditional covenants. An unconditional covenant is also called a unilateral covenant. And in an unconditional covenant, one party binds himself legally in a contractual relationship to another party, but the conditions for fulfilling the obligations of the covenant are upon the person who makes the covenant. In other words, God's going to make a covenant with Abraham. Uh, the, the blessings that are associated with the covenant aren't based on Abraham's behavior. They're based on God's character. So it's called a, an unconditional or a unilateral covenant. All the covenants of the Old Testament except for one are unconditional unilateral covenants. The one conditional or bilateral covenant is the Mosaic Law, which is also a temporary covenant. It was given to Israel for a limited time period and was ultimately fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10:14 Christ is the end of the law to those who believe. So you have these covenants. Now let's think a minute and go back to how we come to understand understand something about covenants. God is unique in in Christianity, in Judeo-Christianity, among any god of any religion, in that he legally binds himself to his creatures. He structures his relationship with creatures according to contracts. Now, that has some interesting implications, one of which is that God recognizes that the structure for relationships is based upon law. We live in a really strange time right now where people don't understand the importance of law and that law has its root not in society, but law has its root in the revelation of God. And when you start making culture or you start making people or you start making creatures the source of law or absolutes or rules, then there's always going to be a breakdown in society. Biblically speaking, 
all relationships are grounded in a universal absolute that flows from the character of God. And this is enunciated and articulated by God in the form of these legal contracts. And, and just, I want you to keep that. We've talked about peace so far. God wants a peaceful, secure environment in the home for the upbringing of Isaac. And there's the background of covenant. We have the fulfillment of the covenant, the initial fulfillment of the covenant in the promised seed at the beginning of chapter 21. We have a vindication of the covenant in chapter 22. And sandwiched in between, we have a parity covenant between Abimelech and and, uh, Abraham. A parity covenant is a contract between two equals, whereas God's covenants with man are not parity covenants because God is superior and he is the one who, who grants these covenants to man. So all, everything that's happening between verses 22 and 34 is related to this covenant, this contract that Abimelech comes to Abraham for. Now what's interesting here is that as, as he comes to, as Abimelech comes to Abraham, he only knows two things about Abraham. Now, this is, this is interesting. He only knows two things about Abraham. He comes to Abraham and he says at the end of verse 22, let me back up, back up there, God is with you in all that you do. In other words, I know that God is blessing you. That's the first thing that Abimelech, that Abimelech knew about Abraham. But verse 23, he knows something else about Abimelech. And if you've been here, you remember this episode back in chapter 20. He says, Now now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me. See, the other thing he knows about Abraham is Abraham is a lion son of a gun. He's deceptive. He came in with Sarah back in chapter 20 and he said, This is my sister and didn't tell him that it was his wife. And the result of that was there was this extended period of time of six, eight, nine, ten months when all the women in, in, uh, in Gerar became barren and no children were born. Now, this didn't bode well for the friendship between, uh, or the long-term friendship between Abimelech and Abraham. You can't build a relationship on deception and lies. So here's this unbelieving Philistine. He's not a Canaanite now. He's a Philistine. He's living in the land God's promised to Abraham. And he comes to Abraham and he says, Two things I know about you. God's blessing you and I can't trust you. Interesting implications there. One of the criticisms that you and I always get as Christians is that we're hypocrites. It's because the unbeliever doesn't understand grace. We're not hypocrites. We're sinners. I don't care what happens over the course of our lives, how mature we are. You and I still have a sin nature that's every bit as powerful now as it was the day we were saved. And we've grown and matured. And due to the grace of God and the Spirit of God, we have a control over the power of the sin nature that hopefully it just doesn't let itself show quite as much as it used to. But every now and then, you and I both know that it does. And when unbelievers look at us and see that, they, 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 they want to put that under the category of hypocrisy. And we have to make that clear. It's not hypocrisy. We're just saved by the grace of God, not because of who we are or what we do, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And Abimelech recognizes that God, that these two things, that God blesses Abraham and he has a relationship with God, and that also Abraham 
is not the most trustworthy. So he comes to Abraham and he is going to request of Abraham in verse 23 that Abraham enter into a contract with him so that on the basis of this legal agreement, there can be an ongoing relationship of peace between Abimelech's descendants and Abraham's descendants. And all of this is going to be marked when we come to the end of this episode by the fact that that Abraham is going to name this place where they enter into this contract, where this well is being dug. He's going to call it Beersheba. Now, we have to go down to the naming of the place at Beersheba down in verse 31 in order to understand some of the things that are going on in this passage. As I sat around today beating my head against the wall trying to figure out what in the world's going on here, one of the things that became apparent was that, and, and I believe this is true, that God uses the uses various words and phrases in Scripture to bring out what he's trying to get across to everybody. And the word Beersheba is a, actually a play on words. You see the Hebrew up on the overhead. It's Be'er Shabbat, literally. The word Shabbat is a paranomasia. That's a pun. For those of you who, who don't know, a paranomasia is a pun. You know, you can always have, a lot of people have puns and play with puns, but most puns are two-thirds of a pun, P-U. So we have a paranomasia here. And the second part, shava, is a word that is a homonym. That means it sounds like another Hebrew word, shava, which is the, shava, which is the word for seven. And you know it when you say the word Sabbath, Shabbat. And you have the same consonants in Shabbat that you have in Shabbat, which is the word for oath. So when you say the word for oath, or the word for seven, uh, unless you have a context, somebody may not know which word you're saying, seven or oath. So if you look down in the notes in your Bible, somebody, some of them will say this means the well of the sevens, and others will say it's the well of the oath. And they're both right. Because in the Bible, what you have, and I've touched on this some in the past, is that uh, names often have what, what scholars refer to as a popular etymology. For example, we saw this with the name Abraham, that Av means father and Raham uh, doesn't mean uh, multitude. But it sounds like the word for multitude, so it has this popular etymology that the meaning of Abraham is the father of multitudes. And this is typical of many of the names of places and people in the Old Testament is that the, the, the actual etymology of the word isn't what it is said to mean, but it sounds like it. It's a play on words so that when you say it, it reminds you of something else. In the Gospel of John, John is filled with these kinds of things in, in the Gospel of John, and that comes from his Hebrew background. And it just shows that these were wordsmiths. They just... They just love to play on words, and the Holy Spirit loves a good joke, and he loves a good pun. And uh, the Old Testament is filled with them. So when you say the word Beersheba, it means the well of the oath, but it sounds like sevens. And see, what's going to happen here is that uh, there's going to be an oath that is sworn, which is related to the which is the meaning of the word Shavah. It's the well of the oath, and the word 
oath occurs by itself three times in the text. And then the word, I don't have another slide for it, the word seven occurs three times in the text. You have seven ewes that are brought, and three times it references the seven ewe lambs that are brought as a, from, by Abraham and given as a gift to Abimelech as a sign of this parity covenant that they're entering into that will be a testimony, a witness down through the generations that Abraham has rights to this well at Beersheba. And then uh, the third thing that is mentioned three times in this section is Beersheba. So Beersheba is mentioned three times, Oath is mentioned three times, and Seven is mentioned three times. Do you get the emphasis in the passage? See how subtle the Holy Spirit is? They don't have things like boldface and italics to bring down the main idea, so the focus is on this idea of covenant and faithfulness. And covenant is related to law. And what's the... The presenting problem or issue here is that there is a a conflict between Abimelech, who is an unbeliever in the land, and, and Abraham, who is a believer in the land, and what provides peace between them in their relationship with one another is a covenant. Now let's just work with that idea for just a minute. In order to provide peace for Abraham and Isaac in the land, there has to be a covenant that is entered into. And we can take that back to the initial uh, statement by God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 when he creates man to be his representative on the earth. It is a covenant. The word covenant isn't used there in Genesis uh, 1. Uh, 26 to 27, but the idea of covenant is used down in Hosea, I think it's Hosea uh, chapter 6, verse 7, which says that, uh, talking to the Jews, he said, that Hosea 6, 7 says that they broke the covenant just like Adam did. Now, you'll have a lot of Old Testament scholars will say that the first use of the word covenant is in Genesis chapter 6, and so you don't have a covenant before that. But Hosea says that Adam broke a covenant, and the terminology in Genesis 1:26 to 27 that they're to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the and the beasts of the field, and they are to multiply and fill the earth is the same kind of terminology you have in Genesis 3. There's a change because of the curse in the relationship with the animals, but they're still supposed to go forth and multiply, and they do, and that's the first thing that happens in Genesis chapter 4 is that Eve gives birth to to Cain, and then after the Uh, Noahic flood, what happens? God enters into a covenant, that's the first clear use of the term covenant, with Noah, and in that he says, now the animals are going to fear you, but you're going to dominate them, and now you can eat animal flesh and what? Multiply and fill the earth. So the same kinds of terms are used in all three of these passages, which indicate that if Genesis 9 is a covenant, then Genesis 3 is covenantal and Genesis 1 is covenantal. It's backward use of logic to, to work your way back to the original. And even though the word isn't used, everything else is there. Now, when man breaks the covenant with God, what happens? There is a breach. 
and it has to be repaired, and the repair of that covenantal, that legal breach, is indicated the first time in in Genesis 3.15 when God said to the serpent that you will bruise, I will send a seed, the seed of the woman, and you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise you on the head. And that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we look to Romans to see the ultimate uh, fulfillment of all of this in Romans chapter 5 is that in Romans chapter 4, Paul gives the greatest explanation of justification. And what is justification? It is a legal or forensic act. Uh, People don't understand that anymore, that salvation is ultimately a legal and forensic act. And it goes back to this idea of covenant, that a covenant has been broken. We have violated the, the covenant God made with Adam. Adam violated it, so the human race is under a penalty. But And there has to be a repair to that penalty, and that repair is done how? Legally. See, everything in human history ultimately comes back to an understanding of law. But we live in a society that doesn't understand that what gives peace and stability to society is law and the rule of law. I remember about three weeks ago, right after we started seeing the shots of the flooding and the devastation of Katrina in New Orleans, and one of the, I think it was Fox News, had an interview. I don't know why. I've never seen her on Fox News before or since, but had an interview with this feminist writer, Naomi Wolf. And she was just about to have a tantrum over the fact that President Bush hadn't immediately, before the storm was even over with, sent in the National Guard. And he should have sent in the National Guard and sent in the military, and he should have done this and he should have done that. And, and the interviewer said, well, what about the fact that it's up to the governor of the state? And she said, it doesn't matter. He should be smart enough to realize they need it anyway and just send, just send them in. And I thought, what is it about the rule of law that these people don't understand? They just want to do whatever satisfies their emotional whim at the time to do whatever they think is right without any understanding of law. And what we see exemplified in our episode in in Genesis 22 is that at the very core of man's relationship to God and man's relationship to man and what resolves the sin issue, because what's what's happening? There is a, a, a hostility between Abimelech and Abraham because of Abraham's sin nature. And what is it that's going to allow these human beings to live together at peace is going to be a covenant. And what is it that allows man to have peace with God is a covenant. And so the covenant is based upon law, and that's related to justification. And then the application of justification is then reconciliation in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, this legal act that takes place at salvation, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. You can't have peace and stability in human relationships without it being grounded in law, whether it has to do with God or whether it has to do with man. And that's the implication out of Romans I mean. Uh, Genesis chapter 21. Now, how does that fit in everything else that's going on in Genesis? 
Because remember, this little episode is intentionally revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, recorded for all of time, and is sandwiched between the birth of the seed and the sacrifice of the seed. And the point that God is showing is that in order to provide a peaceful environment for the upbringing of the seed, both in terms of within the home, that's why he got rid of Hagar and Ishmael, and within the broader community of the neighbors of Abraham, there had to be a covenant that provided a peaceful environment so that Abraham didn't have to worry about the Philistines and living in that environment. So let's go back, and now that I've given you an overview and a little bit of an understanding of what's going on here, and hopefully it hasn't been too, too fuzzy for you, you can see where this is going. So there's a response that, that um, Abimelech comes and makes a request of Abraham to swear, there's that word, make an oath to me, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me. Let me skip ahead. And, wait a minute, did I leave a slide out? Verse, I did leave a slide out. That's why I was getting lost there. Verse 23, Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. Now, a couple of points. Abimelech isn't a Canaanite. He is a non-Canaanite dweller in the land. And if you were a Jew going into the land, you're told to do what? Annihilate all the Canaanites. But not the Philistines. They weren't part of the Canaanites. And so they were to live at peace and at harmony with the non-Canaanite neighbors. And the basis for that peace is going to be legal covenant. So God is teaching the importance of law and the importance of contracts. And this is brought out in Abimelech's speech because he uses the word kindness. And that word kindness in the Hebrew is the word chesed, which doesn't simply mean kindness. It means faithful, loyal love. That is, ultimately, it's faithfulness to a contract. And so what Abimelech is saying to Abraham is, deal with me in a faithful way according to law and according to a contract in the same way that I have dealt with you. And in verse 24... Abraham swears. Now, part of what is happening here as well is that there is a testimony of Abraham to the non-believing Gentiles around him. And we have to remember that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever happens in our life is happen to get, happens to give us a, an opportunity to be a testimony, both to unbelievers as well as to the angels. First Timothy one sixteen emphasizes the fact that things happen to us so that we can be a testi- give legal testimony or be a legal witness to our neighbors and friends. First Timothy one sixteen and yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. And Ephesians three ten relates this to the angelic realm that we are to in, that according to the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what's happening in Abraham's life fits this same pattern. 
that he can be a testimony to the grace of God and to the covenant faithfulness of God in his horizontal relationships with other human beings. But Abraham, after responding to Abimelech and saying that he will swear and enter into a contract, has another problem. He has a problem with Abimelech. In verse 25 we read, Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech. And if that's how it reads in the New King James. If you have a New American Standard, it says Abraham complained to Abimelech. Now, rebuke sounds like he's challenging Abimelech and saying that, you know, you did something wrong and I need to straighten you out. And complain sounds like he's whining. Both of those English words miss the thrust of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word that's used here is the word yakak. And the word yakak in the Hithiel perfect means to decide, to adjudge or adjudicate or to demonstrate in a courtroom. In the Hithiel it has the idea of making a formal legal complaint. So once again we have this talk about oaths, covenants, and, and this word here that indicates a legal complaint. Again, everything that's going on here in terms of these words is, is enforcing this concept of a legal context for this episode, and that's what God wants us to pay attention to, is the importance of, of covenant, the importance of law as the structure for all human relationships, whether it's with God or with man. Now, in this, we see that Abraham and Abimelech aren't just primitive Bedouins. These aren't just uh, primitive pagans or primitive Bedouins. They understand that, that the basis for all their relationships is law, and it is contractual, and they are entering into contracts with one another. So it shows us that, that and what God is emphasizing, is the priority of law. The other thing that is clear here is on the basis of this legal contract, there is a guarantee of private ownership of property for Abraham. So the Bible recognizes not only the legitimacy of accumulating wealth, because Abraham is one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world, but also the legitimacy of private property, and that private property is the, is the key to stability in society and the key also, uh, by way of application, to the accumulation of wealth and the provision of security for one's posterity down through the generations. Now, you can't get that secured in an environment where you have property taxes. And you, if you notice, next time you read through the Mosaic Law, God never authorized property taxes. Because property taxes destroy wealth and prevent the accumulation of wealth, which is what occurs generationally down through the ages. Property taxes destroy private ownership of property. Incidentally, the Mosaic Law did recognize the legitimacy of an income tax. That was the tithe. There was a 10% income tax. But it rejected the notion of property tax. Okay, so we have this application related to law, covenant, and, and property. And then we see Abraham's response in verse 26. And Ab- uh, his complaint has been, or, or excuse me, Abraham's complaint has been that, that Abimelech's servants had come and taken the well. They've stolen the property from him. 
And Abimelech responds and says, I don't know who did this to you. Uh, you did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So he's going to make things right and legitimize Abraham's ownership of the well. And then in verse 27, there is going to be the transfer of property, of, of wealth. Wealth at this time is measured in terms of, of the ownership of animals, livestock, sheep, cattle. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a contract. So the transfer of property seals the contractual arrangement. It's part of the signing of the contract between Abraham and Abimelech. And then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Now the ewe lambs are important because it is the ewe lambs that are that that are necessary for propagation of the flock. And so this speaks of the future fertility for uh, and blessing for Abimelech as a result of his entering into a contractual relationship with Abraham. So in verses 27 and 28, we have the sealing of this legal contract between Abraham and Abimelech that is going to be in effect and should be in effect down through the ages. So it also emphasizes the fact that believers should live in harmony and at peace with those around them, even unbelievers, and can, and by virtue of their presence, can be a source of blessing by association to unbelievers. Now, Abimelech responds in verse 29. He says, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs? No, I didn't highlight it, but yes, I did. Seven ewe lambs in verse 28. The seven's repeated in verse 29, which, again, is a cognate of or a homonym of the word for oath. And so there's this constant reminder of this legal, uh, under, this legal foundation for the passage. In verse 30, Abraham said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. And so, by virtue of the fact that Abimelech received the seven lambs, it is a sign that he has recognized the legitimate property rights of Abraham for the, for the well. As a result, he called the place Beersheba, and this becomes a, a significant place in the history of Israel down through the ages. And every time you say the word Beersheba, it would be a reminder of this contract there. Beersheba, which literally means the well of the seven, referring to the lambs. But because of the oath that's there, it's got that word play. So it's the well of the oath or the well of the covenant. That's the, verse 32. They made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Because of this covenant now, whatever problems there were due to the sin natures of those servants of Abimelech who were encroaching on Abraham's well, and because of Abraham's sin nature and his tendency to be a liar and to be deceptive, because there's now a legal contract, there can be social harmony and peace and stability. And that's the function of law. If it weren't for law, we'd just have a whole bunch of people running around giving vent to their sin natures, but it is law that provides the source of stability and order, and it is specifically important when there is disorder and chaos to fall back on law and follow the procedures. That's what happened after Katrina. People kept saying, well, why are they spending all this time talking about 
Who has the legal responsibility? Just get somebody in there. No, you do things according to law. And when churches enter into crises, when they lose a pastor or they get involved in some kind of uh, in-house disagreement, that's when you pull the Constitution out. Ninety-eight percent of the time in the life of a church, you never look at the Constitution because there's not a problem. Everybody's in harmony. But once you get a problem, that's when you pull the Constitution out and you go by the book because you decide what the principles are and what the guidelines are when everybody is at peace and harmony and when there's no emotion involved. So that when emotions run high and tensions run high, you have an objective standard by which to operate. And I tell you, we live in an era today when churches just violate that left and right, just like the culture does. You know, if any place... If there should be any place in the world where people are going to follow the guidelines in their church constitution, it should be in the church. But I can give you a dozen examples in the last five years of churches who hit some kind of crisis, and it's like, well, who cares what the constitution says? This is what we want to do. And, okay, so you're just as relativistic as the, as the culture around you and just as postmodern. You just... Uh, want to act differently when you come to church. It really is. It's, it's just a sad testimony to the fact that the church is frequently just as worldly or more than the world around it. So then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. It's a sign of the, of the covenant. And the, tr- the presence of the tree, drinking in the water from the well, would be an ongoing sign of the covenant that was entered into there. So he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, And there he called on the name of Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God, the everlasting God. And that term, the name for God, El Olam, that he is the everlasting or eternal God, is an allusion to the fact that law is ultimately grounded in the character of God. And therefore it is eternal, it is universal, and it is unchanging. And that is the ultimate ground for, uh, for covenant. And so the last verse reads, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Why? Because now that there's this contractual relationship between him and Abimelech, there is peace and stability and security in, this, in, in, a, in a tumultuous world so that in this secure environment he can raise up Isaac, who is the promised seed, who will be the source of blessing for future generations. And then as, as Isaac grows up, when he reaches maturity, God is going to have a final exam for Abraham. And that final exam is related to Isaac, and that comes up in chapter 22, and we'll get there next time. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this evening, to understand the principles that are here, and to see the importance of law and covenant and that it is law and covenant that uh, take care of the problems of sin, the problems of sin nature. And ultimately it is your covenant with man that is established at the cross, the new covenant, that is the basis for our legal justification and our reconciliation with you and our peace with you. Father, we thank you for the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.